Well, good morning, Mainstream. I am very happy to be here and open God's Word with you. I would like to say just a word of thanksgiving to the uh, elders of this group to allow me to share God's Word. It's a great privilege, and I'm excited to open it with you. Open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9. That's where we'll be studying today, Joshua chapter 9. And while you're turning there, I would just like to ask this question. If you're going to travel internationally, if you're going to leave the United States of America, what is the f- one of the first things you should think about? What is one of the first requirements for leaving the country? Of course, the passport. If you don't have your passport, you're not going to get out. The reality is, if you want to leave the U.S. or if you want to enter another country, you are dependent upon having this booklet in your hand. It's not very big. You can easily put it in your pocket, but you've got to have it. You know, you can have all these amazing travel plans, you can have hotel reservations somewhere, you can have friends waiting in another country, but if you don't have your passport, you're not going to get through. It's not going to happen. There's actually a classmate that I have in in seminary right now who's in Ethiopia. His mother had contracted COVID and she was struggling with it and has since died. And he was eager to get over there to see her, but his passport needed updating. And so he was struggling to get it expedited so he could make it. And I'm, I'm eager to hear if he actually got to see her before she passed. But the point is, he had to have his passport. His mother was dying, but still he had to have his passport. He was dependent on that booklet to cross the border and to get there. And the theme of our sermon today is dependence. Dependence. We all know this, but I want to stir this up in your minds, and I want you to realize afresh that you are dependent upon God. If you get depressed, if you get discouraged, if you get downcast, you are truly dependent upon the grace of God to renew your soul and strengthen you again to worship Him afresh. You know, when we think about just the turbulent political landscape that we face. You know, what hope do you have of making sense out of all this without a biblical worldview? We're dependent on God. We're dependent on Him. Let's say you have relationship struggles in your home or with family or with friends. What kind of grid do you think through as you approach conflict and hope to resolve it? We're dependent on God. We're dependent on the truth of Scripture to have these principles, to properly think about these problems? What if you have a sin habit that you're trying to break? It's just gripping your life, and you're here wondering, how can I change this habit that I know dishonors God? You're dependent on His grace. You're dependent on the truth of His Word. So as we look at this chapter in Joshua, I want us to see two areas where we can appreciate and highlight our dependence on God. And this is number one, we are dependent on God's word. And number two, we're dependent on his grace. And I know we know these things in a very basic way, but I think after we study this chapter today, it can give us a fresh appreciation. So in just a a few seconds, I want to begin reading in this chapter, but just to kind of refresh you where we are as we parachute into this story. Joshua and all the Israelites are conquering the land. They're fulfilling God's promise. And they've had a few battles And here they are, they're camped, and some neighboring clan comes and tricks them into thinking that they're local and and thinking that they're far away when actually 
that they're just local. And so there's this very focused story on the dialogue of what happens between Joshua and the Gibeonites. So let's begin at verse 1, and we'll stop at verse 15, and this is where we'll study our dependence on God's word. Verse 1 of Joshua 9. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and against Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We're your servants. Joshua said to them, Who are you? Where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of the provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Fascinating story, isn't it? Here's Joshua and the men. They're camped out, poised, ready to go on, continue conquering the land, and then the Gibeonites get tricky on them and come and set them up. And as we grasp and try to understand what's going on, and we think about what's, what's happening here in Joshua, we realize that many hundreds of years before, God had promised Abraham and his family, I'm going to give you the land. That's part of the enormous promise that God had made in this covenant with Abraham. You're going to inherit the land. You and your family will enjoy living in this land. And it's coming to pass. Abraham's long gone. The journey through the wilderness is long gone. Moses is gone. But now Joshua is on the scene. And here is Abraham's children. And they are fulfilling this covenant. They are entering the land. And it's fascinating um, if you want to turn back or listen, but it just how the theme it sets up itself in Joshua. I'm looking at chapter 1 and verse 5. It says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. 
Only be very strong and very courageous. Then note this, being careful to do according to all the law that, my Moses, that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Their success and conquest depended on how well they clung to and meditated on and leaned on God's word. That was the genre. That was the paradigm that God set up for them to go forward and conquer the land. Stay close to me. Hearken to my word. Fulfill my covenant by leaning on my word and not letting it depart from your mouth. And then at the very end of the book, in chapter 23, as Joshua is passing off the scene and he's leaving words for those who are left, the land has been conquered and divided. And as the tribes are being exhorted to continue to fulfill and keep their inheritance, verse 6, Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, This is the thread through the whole book. The people are going to get the land, but you're going to do it by leaning on my word. And if you're going to have good success, it's whenever you depend on the word and the law that I've given you. And so this is exactly what's going on in Joshua chapter 9. They've come through Jericho. They've taken Ai, and they're poised to go farther into the land. And this is the scene that comes up. Okay. Will they be careful to the word of God? Will they be careful to the law of God? How are they going to go forward in their conquest? How carefully are they going to look at God's word as they enter the land? This is the question. And I think this is what the author wants us to realize. And this is what the author is wanting us to focus on. Here's the people. How are they going to do as they compare their lives to God's word going forward? Now then let's dig in a little bit and look at some of the details. First of all, it's interesting to notice in chapter 8, verse 30, that section at the end of the chapter, they've come through, as I said, this conquest of Ai and Jericho, and Joshua reviews the book of the law of Moses. He etches it on some stones, and in verse 34, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. Verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded Joshua to read. So the people had reviewed the law. And then the the narrative picks up in in chapter 9, verse 1. It speaks of all those kings when they saw the success of God's people. And when they saw that the power of God was on this nation to enter, they banded together. They heard of this. They gathered together as one, verse 2. So you have all the nations of the land. They formed this coalition to resist the people of God as they come in the land. But the Gibeonites are different. They don't join that coalition. Verse 3, But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they they on their part acted with cunning. So the Gibeonites are a little tricky here. They're sly. They have not joined the coalition of the other native peoples. They have said, you know, we're going to try another approach. We're going to try craft. We're going we're gonna to try this, this sneaky, deceitful plot and see if we can save our skin. And this is exactly what they do. 
And as you can tell from the story, it's so descriptive, you hardly need me to remind you of it. But they, they act as if they've been on the road for weeks and for days. They intentionally get dry, moldy bread. They go to Goodwill and get old clothes and, and act all shabby and exhausted and weary and travel-worn. They have all these old clothes and they come up this haggard, worn bunch And they use flattery and they come to Joshua and the men. And their whole pursuit is to try to trick them so that the people will think that they're from miles away. We're not anywhere close to you. And they come with flowery words about the Lord, flowery words about the conquest. These guys are good. They know what they're doing. They're successful. You can easily see it. Joshua and the men are tricked. These are men of war. These are men who have sent spies themselves. They tricked. They fall for it. And it's fascinating as we dig closer and realize how much these people know about God's word. They use God's word. Not necessarily use it, but they, they use their awareness of it against God's people. At this point, I think it's helpful to just turn back and look at Deuteronomy chapter 20, and we'll see, again, remembering that theme that the careful adherence to God's word is the key to the people's success. Deuteronomy chapter 20, we see God's word in verse 10. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but it makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. And then in verse 14, it speaks total destruction. Verse 15, thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you which are not cities of the nations here. Do you see how clear that is? There was specific instruction. Make terms of peace with cities that are far off, but do not make terms with cities that are here. Verse 16, but in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, ye shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. Verse 18, they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their God. So shall you sin against the Lord your God. This is God's word. Remember, cling to God's word for success in conquering the land. They've just reviewed the word of God, the law of God in chapter 8. And then here the Gibeonites come. And you can almost feel the anticipation as you just watch and wait. What are the elders, are the, the leaders, is Joshua, are they going to catch it? Or are they going to see, are they going to catch that this is right when you need to cling to God's word? This is right when you need to remember what you already know. God's word came to them. And if you look in verse 7 and 8, it's like the men almost catch it. They said, but the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. How then can we make a covenant with you? And then the Gibeonites turn up the flattery. Verse 8, they said to Joshua, we're your servants. Joshua said to them, who are you? Where do you come from? 
They said, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord, your God. And that name for Lord is Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God. As I said, these guys are good. They use the covenant name of God. That sounds amazing to the pen of Israel. What? These guys, they really love the Lord. They're interested in what's going on. Another way we can see their craft is we see what they intentionally leave out. Verse 10. So we've seen all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites. We've seen what he did to the king in Egypt. Did you notice he didn't, they didn't describe the destruction of Ai and Jericho? That had just happened. That's the reason this whole coalition had formed. They didn't mention that. Because if they did, that would indicate that we're near. They intentionally left that out. They elevated the knowledge that they wanted the Israelites to be thinking about, a flattery. They intentionally avoided their knowledge of the local conquest because they were trying to save their life. And this is exactly what happened right here. The people of God fell for the trap. They fell for the trap. Let's look at it. Verse 14, so the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Does that verse move you? It moves me to think, oh, there's counsel to be asked for. There's wisdom to be had. And I don't get it because I don't ask. Again, I remind you of this theme. The law of God is here to guide the people in their conquest. We've looked back in Deuteronomy earlier to see how this should have informed their decision. Now let's turn back to another portion of God's law. Numbers chapter 27. This is right where the law of God should have been on the people's minds. Numbers 27 verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eliezer, the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. 21, and he shall stand before Eliezer, the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eliezer the priest and the whole congregation, and he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. Think about this. Joshua himself had been at this point what we would call an ordination service for Joshua here. And he was commissioned, the priest is going to be here. You know, come out and go in, find the word of the Lord through the priest and through the Urim. So God's law was there to strictly command them, only make peace with nations that are far off. And the Gibeonites come trying to trick them. And then when it gets right down to the very decision, if they weren't sure, they could have sought the priest. They had the Urim. They had that way to find God's answer. But they failed to ask. They failed to ask. And this so moves me when I realize that all this is around the idea of God's word. And I point you back to verse 4. Did you notice that word? It says the Gibeonites, on their part, they acted with cunning. 
Did you know that word cunning in the original is the same word that Satan used in the garden with Adam and Eve? Or with Eve, rather? That same word and that whole conversation in the garden was God has said this. And Satan was working with them to get a different perspective on the word of God. And so the same idea of God has said this, but what are you going to do about what I've said is happening right here. All this is to teach us we are dependent on the word of God. We are dependent on what God says. What God says matters. What God says about life what God says about death, what God says about righteousness, what God says about holiness and good and evil and right and wrong, all matters. It all matters. This is how we're going to make progress in the Christian life. This is how we're going to walk with God effectively. This is how we're going to be godly, is to have his word and to meditate on it day and night and apply it to our lives. And I think these people knew the word of God. I mean, they just heard it in chapter 8. It was etched on stones. I'm sure they could have found it for you on the scroll. But somehow it wasn't mixed and applied to their life right at the crisis moment. You know, you can take bread and yeast and all the ingredients, the flour and the yeast, but it doesn't make bread until you put it all together. You know, you can have fertilizer in the back of your car, but it doesn't fertilize your grass until you put it on. You know, we can have the word of God, but until you intermingle it with your life, until you chew on it, until you meditate on it and and infuse it into your decision-making process, it's not going to help you. The people had the word of God, but in the moment of crisis, it didn't help them and they failed. The people failed. Let us not be guilty of not applying God's word. We are dependent upon it. We are truly dependent on it. Now let's read the remaining part of the chapter and learn about depending on God's grace. Verse 16, at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shifrah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. The leader said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them and he said, we're very far from you when you dwell among us. Now, therefore, you are cursed. Some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. 
Now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood, drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. What do you think Joshua and the leaders felt like when they realized we've been tricked? We've been had. We are the silly ones. We are the victims in this story. We have been duped by our neighbors. You know, we live in a day when there's the threat of scam and identity fraud everywhere. It pops up on a text. It pops up on an ad. Or you get this goofy-looking email, and you just don't click on it. You just delete immediately because we're always scared of being the one, the victim here. And the rule is just don't give them your personal information. Don't give them your banking because they'll get you. And if you've ever been one of the, a victim in that situation, it's just this awful feeling like they knew this all along. They were after me from the beginning. And no doubt, this is how the people felt. Oh, it was written in the law. Oh, I could have asked the priest, what? Weren't we hasty? I think this really signals how rash and hasty the people were. I mean, within three days, they find out. I mean, this is before Twitter and cell phones. I mean, they found quick. But look, they're local. Wow. If they found out in three days, couldn't they have just held this whole decision off three days? Couldn't they have just researched a little bit? They were hasty. And can we just stop right here and acknowledge that our sin has consequences? We may be God's people. We may be genuine born-again believers, bound for heaven, praise God, but we can make some blunders. We can fail. We can make mistakes. It's going to cost us. We're going to have to wake up and face some of the consequences of our sin. If you make a bad financial decision, you might have to just suffer for it. You know, if you speak harshly to your neighbor or to a family member, it's not easily reversed. Sin, even for believers, is painful. It costs us. And this is the feeling that Joshua and the leaders are facing. At the end of three days, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And they, they, they go to address the crowd. Verse 17, the people of Israel set out and found the cities three days. And then we, in verse 18, we, be, we have this dialogue that begins to happen. The question becomes, now what? These people originally were doomed for destruction. The law commanded us to eliminate them. But we've commanded them in Yahweh's name. We've made a covenant with them in the name of Yahweh. Oh, as I said, sin just complicates things. Because now then they've taken Yahweh's name, the great name that they're conquering under, and they've committed his name and covenant to these people that they should never have. All the problems that comes about when we fail to depend on the word of God as we should. So they're trying to sort this out. They're trying to untangle this mess. No doubt they have these 
eager soldiers that are happy from the victory in Ai and Jericho, and they're ready to blast into the next one. And they're like, whoa, 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 hold back, guys. We've put the name of our God on these people. And then they have other people who say, okay, now you have to live with these people who are liars because we can't kill them, and they live here. This is what's going on. There's this struggle. There's this pain. What should be done now? And I think what the author wants us to see through all this is God is still with them. God is still gracious, and he allows them to honor his name. Did you, did you notice that? God's name is honored through all this. You know, it, it's fascinating to me, the, to me that the Gibeonites were confident if we can just get a promise out of them, we'll be safe. You know what that speaks to me? The Gibeonites like somehow were aware that God was a promise-keeping God and these people are committed to their God. So the very fact that they were willing to try this trick indicates that God is a great God and he has an amazing name and these people are committed to that name. And even the decision that the people make, it's like, no, we've got to honor God's name. We've sworn to them. It's mentioned in verse 18 and verse 19, sworn to them by the Lord. We've sworn to them. God's name, God's character is at stake, and we can't go back on this. So through all of this mess and through all this tangle, that God's name and God's honor is lifted up. So as the people of God going forward to conquer the land, and to fulfill the promise made to Abraham. They've messed up. They've made a mistake. But God has allowed his name to be honored. And this is a wonderful thing. This is a wonderful thing. Makes me think of Romans chapter 8, 28. Everyone likes to quote it. About God working all things together for good. The failure was the people's. The sin was Joshua and the leaders. But the glory is God's. In the wisdom of God, the mistake of the people does not defeat the forward trajectory of God's promise. The people of Abraham will inherit the land in spite of the foolishness of these people. It's an amazing thing. It's a marvelous thing to see this happen. I remember when I was just a boy, my dad was teaching me to drive, and I was driving a tractor, and most tractors are standard, so you have the clutch and the whole gear shift thing you're trying to figure out. My dad was right beside me explaining how all this was done, and we were coming to park it in front of the barn, and I made the classic mistake, letting off the clutch too quick, lurches, crashes into the barn. And I remember... After that, you know, every time you see the barn or every time you see the tractor, there's like this matching dent, you know? <laughs> it fits. That's your mistake. You did that. Think about Joshua and the people here. Every time they see the Gibeonites, oh, yeah, we messed up there. That was our blunder. Ah, we were so foolish that day. We had God's word, we had the priests, we blundered. And now they're living with it. But my dad was gracious. He didn't yell at me. He never held that over my head. The dent stayed on the barn. The dent stayed on the tractor. He didn't hold it. He was gracious. So that memory for me is 
a reminder of my mistake and my kind father. I think that's what this story is doing for us. Foolish mistakes, kind father. You know, silly things that should have never happened. But an almighty God that cannot be stopped. There's a little bit more of grace in this story. I don't know if you noticed it, but I think it's grace to the Gibeonites. Did it ever occur to you that here they are, they're cutters of wood and drawers of water for the temple of God? The temple, the place of worship where people go to get their sins dealt with, to go and worship Yahweh, to go and seek the one who they worship and the one who made them. And now here's the Gibeonites, the ones doomed for destruction, the ones that have the death sentence, the ones who had no hope, are now here serving the temple. One of the Psalms of Korah speaks and said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. There's this longing. David longed for the house of God just to be close, just to be near. The whole temple was set up just so we could draw near to God. We've got to bring these sacrifices. We've got to make ourselves clean so we can come near to God. Here's the Gibeonites. I don't want to read too much into it. We're not told that they're saved. We're not told that they're genuine worshipers. But I don't think we should overlook that fact. I think that's a token of grace to them. At the very least, they were within some sort of distance of the worship of Yahweh. And again, that picks up on that theme that people make mistakes, but God's ultimate purpose cannot be reversed. And God is a gracious, kind God that gets glory when wretched, miserable sinners are able to worship him. And I think this is a token of grace that we can see. So we're talking about dependence on God We need him. We need him to be godly, to be holy, to live in a world like this. We're dependent on him. He created us. We're dependent on him to be saved. Our hearts were hard. We never would have turned to him aside from his grace. And yet we're dependent on him just to go forward in life and like the Israelites, just to do the very thing he's called us to do. We are dependent on God. We're dependent on his word And we're dependent on his grace. You know, it's interesting. You can go and look at some of the lists in the book of Nehemiah. When the people came back after captivity, years of captivity, devastation. And there is a portion of Gibeonites that come back. Wow. A portion of Gibeonites that went into captivity with the people of God. And then they're brought back when the city is rebuilt, when the walls are erected. And in the annals 
of the history of the Old Testament, the Gibeonites are there. It's amazing, God's grace. Later on in 2 Samuel 21, there's a famine in the land. Three and a half years, a bad famine. David seeks the Lord. Why Why this famine? Lord, what's going on? He said it's because of Saul and it's because of the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites stayed in the territory of Saul. And Saul says because of his zeal for the Lord, killed some of them. Maybe he was thinking, I'll be zealous for the Lord. These people aren't Israelites anyway, and he killed some of them. But no, the name of God was on those Gibeonites. Years later, and God sent a famine because of the mistake of this chapter when the Gibeonites were promised life. My point is the grace of God and the wisdom of God in what happened in this story ripples throughout the Old Testament. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. And doesn't this encourage us? We've made, we make parenting mistakes. We make big boo-boos. We do things we should have never done. We say things we should have never said. But it should be an encouragement to us that the grace of God in our lives cannot be reversed. God in his almighty power is ordaining our lives in orchestrating situations to carry us forward to salvation and to redemption and eventually heaven. Be encouraged, people. Be encouraged, Christian. If you're here and you're facing this glaring problem, this tangled mess, you're not sure what to do with the situation, know that an eternal wise God can do things in your situations and your circumstance that you never dreamed to bring glory to himself and to show grace and kindness to you and other people through it. So we see that we're dependent on God's word, we're dependent on his grace as we go forward, and we see that God in his great wisdom, almighty sovereignty and power can take the mistake of people and yet turn it around for his glory. He did this in this story, but I remind you that he did that in the New Testament as well. The greatest evil that ever happened was when the Son of God was crucified. The greatest evil that ever happened were in wicked hands. Took a man who had never sinned. Took a man who righteously lived the law of God. Took a man who knew pain and sorrow and poverty, and they put him on a cross. That's wicked. That's bad. That's evil. No such injustice has ever happened before. A truly innocent victim died a horrible death. That's bad. That's evil. That's wrong. The Romans had vicious hands. The Romans had a merciless spirit. But then the very own people of God were so jealous, deceived, proud. They crucified the son of their king, the son of Yahweh, the the, the son of God who came to pay for their sins and to redeem them. They said, let his blood be on us and on our children. That's awful evil. But God took that wicked act. 
and redeemed people for himself. Atonement was happening with Christ. The sins of all the redeemed were put on the Son of God. And the wrath of God was poured out on him while he was on the cross. And it's because of that wrath that went on Christ and he felt like a sinner. He felt the guilt of God's people. That's how you and I can stand here and sing the hymns this morning. That's how we can feel the peace with God this morning. Because the terrible evil happened to Christ. That evil should have been ours. That guilt should have been ours. But it went on him. So this story in Joshua 9 was not the last time when a bad thing happened and God turned it for good. And if there's anyone here or you're here at church just because this is the thing to do and you have never worshipped Christ as your king and God as your father. Know that today is your day to turn. Sin is your native tongue. You come here speaking in sin, loving the way it tastes, give me more. And it takes the power of God to transform a hard heart. But he can. So turn to him. Repentance, faith. Let him break your hard heart. And turn to him, and he can save you completely, save you fully. Makes me think of that hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. Yea, and you look at the themes of many of our hymns, ones we sang this morning. It's the song of redemption. It's the song of utter amazement that wicked sinners could draw near to God. So our sermon today has been about dependence. We're truly dependent upon him. As we go forward in life, as we think about the challenges that face us, the uncertainty of our future, we're dependent on his word to give us light, to give us direction, to give us guidance. Then we're also dependent on his grace to manage situations and circumstances that we can never control and to work his glory and our good in all our days. Like it says in the psalmist, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Let's pray. Lord, you are a good God to us. You've been so kind in sustaining us and keeping us and creating us. Lord, you've been gracious to turn our hearts to you when we were running away from you, when we didn't care. We had no thoughts or no affections to you. You rescued us and turned us towards you, and we thank you for that. Thank you for these truths from your word, and Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us and motivate us to depend on you fully this week. Lord, bless the remaining of the services today and all those who teach your word and We thank you for Christ and what he's done for us, and we pray in his name. Amen.